calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose? Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at Scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at Scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Eight. A wave of warm air caresses us. Outside are open doors a hallway. The walls are white and smooth, but scratched and cracked in places. The ceiling seems to be made from some kind of pale, rough crystal that glows brightly. Like the coffin room, the floor is a field of soft gray. Bello and Aramovsky hold each other, her head barely reaching his shoulder. Spingate takes a step behind O'Malley, who is watching me waiting for me to act. Yang lurks in the background, still pretending to be bored as far as I know. Someone has to go first. I take a deep breath. I'm the leader, right? That means I have to lead. When I step out, I am surprised that Yang steps out with me. That's smirk again. Can't let you have all the glory, can I? He pretended to be bored with us, but couldn't let me be the first one out. Young is strange, or maybe he's normal. I have no way of knowing. The hall runs to the left and right, straight and true as far as I can see in either direction. And on both sides, more to the right than the left, bumpy things all across the floor, just as coated in dust as the floor itself. Those things are, I think of Brewer, shriveled up little Brewer. Those things are, 
I squeeze my eyes shut. My brain doesn't seem to work. My thoughts feel clogged. My head feels muddy, is the word that feels right. I can't put the pieces together. I don't want to put them together. As a group, the others step out around me. No one says a word. Yang turns right, walks to the first pile of bumpy things. He reaches down and picks something up. Dust tumbles from it, tiny waterfalls of curling motes that hang in the air. He's holding a bone, long white, with bits of dark material clinging to it, scraps of dried meat. It looks like he is holding a nightmarish club. It's a femur, Spingate says, her words a shocked sigh. A human femur. Yang drops it. He looks down, slowly turns in place. He is surrounded by skeletons, by bones, piles and piles of them. This hallway is full of dead people. Hands on my arm, Bello clinging to me. Em, this isn't right, she says. Let's leave this place. A great idea, if only I knew where to go. Young reaches for a round bump near his feet. His hands brush away the gray, then come up holding a human skull covered in tightly dried skin. There is no jawbone. Two empty eye sockets staring out. He looks at it, adjusts it in his hands. As he does, the stiff flesh along the jaw cracks and crumbles, becomes a puff of descending dust. And then, I understand. The dust, it's skin, skin and muscle, eyes and brains and guts that have become nothing more than floating powder, powder that was in my mouth, down my throat, powder that is all around me, coating everything. What I thought was a sea of dust is an ocean of death. Young drops the skull, then runs back to us, to the safety of the group. Bello cries silently. O'Malley puts his arm around her. Everyone is looking at me again, waiting for me to tell them what to do, even Yong. But I don't know what to do. Who would? I have to think, have to figure out what makes sense. The hallway really seems to go on forever in both directions. All along it are more archway doors that look like the one we just walked out of. Some of these doors are slightly open dark spaces with who knows what inside. Others are still sealed shut, the stone gouged and chipped. Now that I've seen the bones, I can't unsee them. Up and down the hall, lumps in the dust. Bones are everywhere. Some are full skeletons. Some bones lie by themselves, cracked, broken, splintered. A few of them are blackened, charred. They were burned. Bello's silent cry shifts to a quiet sob. Something about her tears suggests weakness. Crying doesn't fix anything. Makes me want to scream at her to shut up, to stop it already. But I know she can't help it. Where are we? She says through the tears. What happened here? O'Malley still has his arm around her. If I was the one crying, would he put his arm around me? He lets go of Bello and walks a few steps to Aramovsky, whispers something in the taller boy's ear. Aramovsky moves to Bello, 
He puts his arm around her, pulls her in close. Bello rests her head against his white shirted shoulder. O'Malley walks to the skull. He picks it up, brushes off what little dust remains. A few crispy flakes of skin crumble away. He turns it in his hands, holds it toward us so we can see the top. There is a jagged, roughly triangular hole in the curved white bone. Someone killed this person, he says. Hit him, or her, with something heavy. Hit so hard, it punched through the bone. Maybe there was a battle. He squints at it, then at us, at our heads, as if he is comparing the size. I think these people were grown-ups, grown-ups who slaughtered each other. How many dead people lie in this hallway? Maybe a hundred? It's hard to tell with the parts scattered all over. One of the dusty skeletons has something sticking out of it. Is that a handle? I walk to what was once a person, grab the handle and pull it free. I stare at a flat pointed piece of metal. I'm holding a knife. If I put the bottom of the metal handle in the crook of my elbow, the knife point would reach the tip of my middle finger. Where the blade joins the handle, two pieces of thin, strong metal stick out the sides. They are etched with tiny carvings of stepped pyramids and suns. At the very end of the handle, below where my hand holds the grip, is a flat, round disc, ringed by tiny red gemstones, with another circle of the same stones inside of it. The circle in a circle symbol exactly like the one on Aramovsky's forehead. I'm holding the tool in one hand, the knife in the other. Bellow's nose wrinkles. M, is that a sword? Swords are bigger, Young says. I think. No, they're bigger. Leave it here, Bellow says. That's for them. That's for the grown-ups. We don't need it. I want to drop it not because of her words, but because the knife frightens me. I don't even want it touching my skin. This knife was used to kill. It was used to turn people, people like us, into nothing but piles of bones and puffs of dust. The grown-ups killed each other. If any of them are still alive, will they try to kill us too? We might have to defend ourselves, I say to Bello. We need it. She shakes her head. We don't need it, Em. It's a bad thing. Please don't bring it. Young comes closer to me. His eyes are suddenly alive, burning with eagerness. He holds out his hand. Give the knife to me, he says. I'll take it. You carry the tool. There is a hunger to his words. Something disturbing about his need. Just like I know it's a bad idea if he leads, I know he shouldn't have the knife. I'll hold on to it for now, I say. He is standing in front of me, his back to the others. They can't see his face, but I can. His upper lip twitches, twists into a sneer. His eagerness shifts, transforms. His heavy black hair hangs down almost over his eyes, eyes that blaze with hate. You'll change your mind, he says quietly. Then, in the faintest whisper, or I'll change it for you. Before I can respond, he smiles, turns and walks back to the others, 
leaving me alone with the skeleton. I briefly wonder if I should tell everyone what he said, but I decide against it. We don't need another argument right now. We need to follow Bellow's advice and get away from this place. I look at the doors lining the hallway. Gouge, chipped, scratched. Were people desperate to get inside? I see one set of doors that are slightly open. If we had come out of our room and turned left instead of right, this archway would have been a few feet down on the right-hand side. The space between the stone doors is barely wide enough for me to slide through if I turn sideways. Coming from inside that room, I see a dim, flickering light. Does that room have more coffins? I walk toward it, past Bello and the others. A strong hand lands on my shoulder. It's O'Malley. Em, don't go in there, he says. He sees me looking at his hand, then pulls it away. His face flushes. He didn't act like that when he put his arm around Bello. I have to, I say. There could be more of us inside. O'Malley closes his blue eyes for a second, swallows, nods once, opens them. Then I'm going in with you. Those words make my heart hammer so loud, I wonder if he hears it. I'm holding the knife and the tool. I thought the tool was a weapon at first. It's not, but it will still work fine for that purpose. I hold it out to O'Malley. Take it, I say, in case there's danger. Spingate gasps. She points at the tool. It's called a scepter, she says. That word just popped into my head. The tool, that's what it's called. Scepter, tool, weapon. All I care about right now is that it is heavy and O'Malley can use it to smash things. He takes it. I'm with you, Em, he says. His eyes, so blue. I can't look at him any longer, so I face the door. I walk to it and slide my body through the narrow opening. O'Malley follows. Nine. The room is dim, illuminated by a single flickering light high up in the arched ceiling. I point the knife out in front of me. O'Malley holds the bottom of the scepter with both hands, the prongs up near his ear. Like our room, there are 12 dusty coffins arranged in two end-to-end -end rows of six. All the coffins are open. The lid halves aren't folded neatly to the sides. They stick up at different angles, broken. Did the occupants fight their way out like I did? I walk up to the first coffin. O'Malley is right next to me. I brush off the nameplate before looking inside. Orange stones surround the name L. Morgan. Inside the coffin, dust-covered clothes, a little white shirt, a short red tie, little black pants, covering a tiny withered corpse. A corpse far smaller than Brewer. A corpse so small, I could cradle it in both arms. The skull, the tiny skull, is smashed to bits at the center of the forehead, I can't tell what symbol is in that dried, cracked skin, if there was any symbol at all. O'Malley's shaking hand slowly reaches toward L. Morgan's head. His fingertip gently touches the ridge of bone below the little skull's right eye. A child, O'Malley says, barely more than a baby. How could anyone do this? A baby. 
Even if L. Morgan had been awake when the attack came, he couldn't have defended himself. The grown-up bodies in the hallway, maybe those people died in a battle, but that's not what happened here. O'Malley walks to another coffin. One lid half remains closed, the other has been torn away, tossed to the floor long ago to become a landing place for dust. Same thing here, Em, he says. His voice is ragged, more breath than words. They ripped the lid off, then they caved in this little girl's face. I see a pile of bumps in the dusty aisle between the coffin rows, then another and another. It wasn't just children that died in here. There are 10 more coffins in this room. They are all open. I don't have to look inside them to know what lies within. All these little kids, slaughtered where they lay. I can't bear at this for one second more. I have to get out of here. O'Malley, come on. But don't you want to come on? I hurry back to the stone doors. I squeeze through the crack and into the hallway. Spingate, Bellow, Young, and Aramovsky are waiting, their eyes wide, their faces carrying an expression I now recognize, the look of someone desperately hoping for good news. Well, Spingate says, are there more of us? They were younger, I say, and they're all dead. Younger? Spingate says, like Brewer? I shake my head. I hold my free hand at my hip, palm parallel to the floor, showing them how tall L. Morgan would have been. Everyone looks down, as if they expect a child to suddenly appear at my side, my hand on his head. They are shocked, even young. Despair pulls at his features, makes me forget his constant smirk. Behind me, O'Malley slides out of the narrow opening. His chest barely fits through the gap. The stone door's edges rip off another button, drag a long white scratch across his smooth skin. Bello stares at him, hopefully, like she wants him to tell a story different from mine. Is it true? She asks. Little kids? O'Malley nods. Little kids, dressed like us. They were murdered. Murdered. The word enrages me. We could have died the same way, murdered while we slept. I want to know who bashed in those tiny skulls. I want to find the people who did it, and I want to make them pay. It was the grown-ups, I say. I hear the hate in my voice. It had to be. They want to kill us. I spread out my arms, gesturing to the bones in the hall just like they killed each other. I don't want to look in any of the other rooms. We need to get away from all this death. I stare up the right side of the hall, then the left. To the left is our coffin room and where we found the knife. The right seems to have fewer bones, so that's where we'll go. This way, I say, and I start walking. O'Malley falls in on my right side. The other four follow. We leave the skeletons behind. 10. We are walking uphill. The angle is so slight I didn't notice it at first, but the hallway slopes gently upward. We've been walking for hours. At least we think it's hours. 
We have no way of tracking time. The endless incline is subtle, but it exhausts us, leeches away what little strength we have. I hold the knife. O'Malley carries the scepter. I tried carrying both for a little while, but the scepter was too heavy. If we had walked in the other direction, we'd have been going down. Spingate said there's no limit on how far down we could go, how deep into the ground. But up can't go on forever. Can it? Our coffin room must be far below the surface. This hallway doesn't seem to have an end. The softly glowing ceiling gently curves upward and parallel with the floor. Far ahead of us, the floor and ceiling seem to meet. But no matter how much we walk, that connection always appears to be exactly the same distance away. No one speaks. The memory of the bone pile and the dead kids stays with us, silences us. We've left that behind, though, for which we're grateful. Bones aren't the only thing we've left behind. We haven't seen a door in maybe an hour, near as we can tell. We walk through an empty, blank, untouched corridor of dust. My stomach hurts. It pinches. It grumbles loudly. I hear similar noises coming from the others. We need to eat. Hungry, tired, confused, afraid. It's wearing on us. Our feet drag across the hard floor, leaving long footprints in the dust. O'Malley finally breaks the silence. There have to be people who are still alive, he says. We can contact someone, get rescued. Rescue, another word of power, someone to save us. I hope my parents are alive, hope their bones weren't among those hidden beneath the gray powder. I don't remember my mother's face or her name, but I know I love her. And my father, if he loves me, why hasn't he come for me? I feel like he was brave, like he was strong, but I don't know if that's true, or I'm being a little girl, hoping her daddy was the best daddy there could be. Bellow scoots out in front of us, turns to face us and walks backward. For the first time, she seems excited. Maybe the people who rescue us will have food, she says. I remember smelling something. My dad, cooking dinner. Some kind of meat, maybe? My mouth waters and my stomach rumbles louder. Bread, Bellow says, her eyes all dreamy. Hot bread with butter and cinnamon, all crunchy on the outside and soft inside. A sandwich, O'Malley says, with mustard and pickles and big fat salty slices of cold chicken. Pork chops, that's what my dad was roasting. How can I know that and not know his face? Cupcakes, Aramovsky says. Chocolate with chocolate icing as high as the cupcake itself, and lots of sprinkles. My mouth waters so badly I almost drool. Pasta, Young says, with tomato sauce and so much cheese on top, you have to take like three bites before you can even find the pasta beneath. I don't care what they bring, Spingate says, as long as it's hot, and more of it than I can even eat. But for dessert, I'm definitely going for one of Aramovsky's cupcakes. Me too, O'Malley says. Bello shakes her head. She's still walking backward, her eyes sparkle. She stands straight and tall, as tall as she can be, anyway. She's happy. 
She looks like a completely different person from the sniffling girl I met back in the coffin room. You're all wrong, she says. She taps her temple. You're obviously not a thinker like me. Aramovsky's right about chocolate with chocolate icing, but it needs to be a birthday cake with 12 candles. Aramovsky laughs. You're right, Bello. But are there still sprinkles? There better be sprinkles. Bello rolls her eyes in mock annoyance. Of course there are. It's your birthday, so you get sprinkles. We all get sprinkles. Everyone agrees that this is a splendid way to finish our rescue meal. Smiles, nods, yummy noises. It's an almost perfect moment. For a brief instant, we're not in our grown-up bodies with two small clothes and no shoes. We're not surrounded by dust that used to be people. And we're not lost and alone. We're six friends walking together on our way to a birthday party. There will be cake. There will be games. There will be presents. There will be parents who love us and protect us. Still moving down the hall, Bello spins in slow circles, letting momentum swing her arms wide. I bet our parents are coming to get us, she says. They have to be looking for us, right? Mine are, Young says instantly. Bello nods. So are mine, but I can't remember them. Young, do you remember your parents? What they look like? He makes that pfft noise again. Of course I remember them. We all know he's lying. He knows it too, but no one challenges him. Because it's a nice lie. One we'd all like to believe. Bellows spin slows. The excitement drains from her face, and fear owns her again. She stops, so do the rest of us. There are tears in her eyes. Crying again? Bella was really starting to bother me. Our parents, she says. What if our parents are the ones who put us in the coffins? I wondered the same thing. I'm ashamed I considered it, even for a second. I see the others looking down, looking away. We've all had that thought, but Bella was the first to voice it out loud. No one answers her. She seems to shrink, hunching over a bit, elbows pulling tight to her ribs, hands ringing left over right, right over left. Bello stands still, lets the group pass her by. Then she falls in at the rear end. We return to walking in silence. We hear only the sounds of our breathing and our shuffling feet and our growling stomachs. Maybe another hour passes, maybe two. We keep going because we don't have a choice. Then, far up ahead, that ever-present meeting of ceiling and floor changes, another hallway crossing ours. It's something different, which is enough to make us pick up the pace despite our exhaustion. We reach the intersection. The new hallway leads off to the right for a long ways, but the light from the ceiling is dim. Farther in, it looks like there is no light at all. Maybe a hundred steps away, I see a single archway door in the dimness. It's wide open. Maybe there are more beyond it, but it's too dark to tell. To the left, the hallway goes a few feet before it stops at a wall. A wall that looks like black liquid frozen in mid-splash, as if it melted then cooled. Maybe it used to be a door. 
very different from the other doors we've seen so far. Spingate steps a few feet into the hallway on the right. She stares down it, tilting her head slightly, as if that might let her see a bit farther. We've been in the same hall for a long time, she says. We haven't found anything, so far, I mean. Should we try this new one? No one else speaks. Are they waiting for me to decide? Yong walks to stand next to Spingate. He stares down the new hall just as she did, even tilts his head the same. Then he looks back at me. We'll go this way, he says. That makes sense. I'm not sure that it does. The hallway to the right is different. It looks flat. I don't see the floor meeting ceiling illusion I've been looking at for the last few hours. But then again, that could be because there isn't enough light to see that far. The hallway we're in now seems endless, but it has to lead somewhere. I can't say that for sure about the new direction. We're not going to walk down a dark hall, I say. Besides, we need to keep going straight. Aramovsky points down the hall to the right. But that way is flat. Maybe you didn't notice. We've been walking uphill for, well, for a long time. My legs are tired. So are mine. I'd like to give my legs a break as much as he would, but I know I'm making the right decision. We go straight, I say again. If we start making turns, we might not know what direction is what. If we keep going straight, at least we know how to get back to where we came from if we get into trouble. I know it's tiring, but walking uphill is a good thing. Every step we take is a step closer to getting out. I see shoulders droop. I hear heavy sighs. They don't want to agree with me. They want to go the easier way. M's in charge, O'Malley says. He sounds tired. We follow her lead. Spingate sighs and shrugs. Bello nods reluctantly. Aramovsky keeps looking down the new hallway like it's paved with the cupcakes of his dreams. None of them want to go my way, but they seemed resigned to my decision. All save for Yang. I don't want to follow M's lead anymore, he says. He crosses his arms. I think it's my turn to be in charge. We don't take turns, O'Malley says. This isn't a game. Yang points at me. There's something petulant in the gesture, something mean. And for a moment, I see a 12-year-old bully wearing an adult's body. She doesn't know what she's doing, Yang says. He looks at me, holds out his palm. You tried, Em, but you failed. It's my turn now, so give me the knife. And just like that, the 12-year-old is gone. I'm looking at a grown man, a lean, strong man who isn't going to take no for an answer. He wiggles his fingers inward. Give it to me, Yang says. If you don't, I'll take it from you. You won't like that. Spingate puts her hands on her hips. Quit being a jerk, Yang. M's in charge. You, Yang's hands are so fast, I barely see him move. He shoves Spingate hard. She crashes against the wall and falls to her butt. She looks at him in wide-eyed surprise. She doesn't try to get up. Bello and Aramovsky press lightly against each other and back away, watching the sudden conflict. I should say something, I know it, but my mouth doesn't move. O'Malley does. That's enough, he says. Young isn't the only grown man here. O'Malley holds the scepter in his right hand. 
He seems uncomfortable with the jeweled metal, like he doesn't really know what he's supposed to do with it in this situation. He takes a step toward Yong. Hitting people is bad, O'Malley says. Tell Spingate you're sorry. Yong makes his pfft sound. Or what? You going to make me apologize? O'Malley's fingers flex on the scepter. His shirt hangs open. The last button must have popped free. I'm not going to make you do anything, he says. I just, we don't hit each other. M's in charge, okay? Young rushes at O'Malley, cocking his right fist as he does and slamming it into the bigger boy's nose. O'Malley's head rocks back. He drops awkwardly, sitting on his left foot, his right leg sticking out. Young twists his shoulders, throws a left fist that hammers O'Malley's right eye. O'Malley drops to his side. The scepter slides from his grip. He doesn't move. Young looks at me. I'm in charge now, Em. He again holds out his palm. Give me the knife. I see him, see the star on his forehead, the sneer on his lips. He thinks he can do anything he wants. He thinks he can push people around. He thinks he owns people. In that instant, I hate him. I want him to hurt. He raises his eyebrows in mock surprise. No, don't think your turn is over. You let us know where, Em. I'm hungry and we're going to do it my way. I told you to give me the knife, you stupid circle girl, or else. Hate him, hate him, hate him. Yang shrugs. Have it your way. He strides toward me, confident and dangerous. Spingate is still sitting, staring. Aramovsky and Bello do nothing. Young cocks back his fist. He sneers in fury and arrogance. He leans forward to punch at me. He stops, fist still hanging in the air. His eyes are wide, his mouth is open. He looks down, so do I. The knife, the handle is in my hand, but the blade, the blade is buried in his belly. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.